You are listening to 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. Stay tuned for the Heartland Labor Forum, radio that talks back to the boss. Forum, a weekly show of news, information, and commentary by and for the working people of Kansas City. This show is produced by a team of volunteers from a broad range of workplaces and unions. The views expressed on the Heartland Labor Forum are ours and not necessarily those of KKFI or any unions involved. Welcome again to the Heartland Labor Forum. I'm Judy Ansel. Tonight's show is being underwritten by Teamsters Joint Council 56 and Kansas City Building Trades Council. Teamsters Joint Council 56 and our nine local unions represent 30,000 workers, retirees, and their families in western Missouri, Kansas, and Nebraska. We're proud to support the Heartland Labor Forum and their commitment to giving working families a voice in the greater Kansas City community. And the Kansas City Building Trades Council, the men and women who build KC. The Heartland Labor Forum and KKFI thank our underwriters for their support. On tonight's show, despite a Democratic majority for 18 months, the National Labor Relations Board has moved at a glacial pace. Recently, though, there's been a flurry of new decisions. Is it too little too late? We'll ask Robert Ayafola, labor reporter from Bloomberg. Then, Jonathan Melrod was a 60s student radical who joined the working class in order to create a new, more just world. We'll talk to him about his memoir, Fighting Times, Organizing on the Front Lines of the Class War. In the news, Labor Secretary Marty Walsh resigns, leaving for a new job with more money. And new news feature, the goofiest bill of the month from the Kansas and Missouri legislatures. Our feature at the end of the show is remember our struggle with Ariana, and she'll be giving us a bit of labor history about the Kansas City general strike. And now for the news. And now for the news from our side, February 9th, 2023. Some of tonight's news comes from the Payday Report, 
put out by a hard-working, hungry-for-support labor reporter named Mike Elk. You can check it out at paydayreport.com. In today's issue, there's a headline, 5,000 CSX workers reach paid sick leave deal about how, despite the disappointment, I'm sorry, reach a payday sick leave deal. Despite the disappointment of Biden and the Democrat-controlled Congress imposing a contract on railway workers last fall that they had previously rejected and that did not include any sick leave, now 5,000 members of the Brotherhood of Maintenance of Way employees, that's the track workers, at CSX, and the Brotherhood of Railway Carmen, employed by CSX, have won the right to seven paid sick days. Since profits at the other Class 1 railroads besides CSX are very healthy, BMWED President Tony Cardwell told CNN that nothing but greed would stop the other rail corporations from agreeing to the same sick day provisions with the rail unions. Another payday report story asks whether Labor Secretary Marty Walsh, who just announced he's leaving the Biden administration and who was the guy behind the imposition of the lousy rail contract. Walsh is leaving to become the president of NHL Players Association. The job pays $3 million a year. Elk's story comes from the American prospects Robert Gartner, who explains that Walsh is close to the owner of the Boston Bruins, Jeremy Jacobs, who donated heavily to Walsh during his campaigns to be mayor of Boston and who, as NFL Board of Governors chair, helped Walsh get the offer from the Players Association. Jacob has a reputation as being hardline anti-union and is widely known as being the guy who makes lockouts happen. Partner wrote that Walsh's sudden departure from being Secretary of Labor raises serious questions about financial conflicts of interest that could hurt the players' union, and his resignation came as a big surprise to Biden on the eve of his State of the Union address, when Walsh had been designated as a cabinet head to not attend and rather go to a safe place in case someone blew up Congress, killing all others in succession to the president. Gartner says Walsh is both one of Biden's closest personal friends in the cabinet, as well as the symbol of Biden's cultivation of the working class. When you are interviewed for a cabinet job, you are explicitly asked to commit to stay for the entire term. Walsh's abrupt Departure also leaves Biden with the problem of who to appoint in his place. The front runner is Deputy Labor Secretary Julie Su. She is favored by the AFL-CIO. She's tough, progressive, and hands-on, according to Gartner. As California Secretary of the Labor and Workforce Development Agency, Su pushed through the state law giving gig workers the rights of other employees. She won court cases that compelled employers to pay workers the back wages they were owned. But for that reason, she may be hard to confirm, as gig companies like Uber will strongly oppose her. Stay tuned. Our third story from the Payday Report is this. 
Over in the UK, that's England, the massive strike wave known as the winter of discontent has not yet hit its crest. Last week, more than 500,000 public employees went on strike. Earlier this week, 300,000 healthcare workers walked out. Now, over 100,000 civil servants have struck to protest budget cuts. Public and Commercial Services Union General Secretary Mark Sirwatka told The Guardian that British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak doesn't seem to understand that the more he ignores our members' demands for a pay rise to get them through the cost of living crisis, the more angry and more determined he makes them. At least 100,000 civil servants will join one, a one-day strike action on Budget Day in a significant escalation in a long-running dispute over pay, pension, and job security demands. The strike by the Public and Commercial Services Union, which will comprise workers from uh, across 123 government departments, is scheduled to coincide with Jeremy Hunt's announcement of his first full budget on March 15th as the government prepares to wrest control over the cost of living crisis and stick to its deficit reduction plan. Sir Watka said PCS members are suffering an unacceptable pay decline. He claimed that 40,000 civil servants have had to resort to food banks and a third of and many staff in His Majesty's Revenue and Customs will be earning just about the minimum wage by April. It's an appalling way for the government to treat its own workforce, he said. We are going to start a new feature to last while our state legislatures in Kansas and Missouri are in session. We'll call it Goofist Bill of the Week. We thought it would be one in Missouri reported by The Independent who calls it ballot candy. That's the introductory statement added to the proposed constitutional amendment by gutting the people's right to propose and vote on constitutional amendments. Instead of language which explains this, Republicans sought to confuse voters, stating up front that it's an amendment saying that non-citizens cannot vote. Well, that's already illegal and enshrined in the Missouri Constitution. So adding it to an unrelated amendment is just a trick to confuse people on what they are really voting on. But the winner of the Goofist Bill Award goes to Kansas, and state senator and former weatherman Mike Thompson from Shawnee aided by new attorney general Chris Kobach. A Senate committee today approved Senate Bill 50, making it a crime for a social media company to censor misinformation. Kobach authored an amendment changing the penalty from civil to criminal. Of course, bills like these two are not just goofy, they are dangerous. That's the news from our side. The news was read by Judy Enso, and I am Zhong Jingli. Stay tuned to Mark Gallers with news on what's new from the National Labor Relations Board. I'm Mark Gallus. What has the National Labor Relations Board been up to? To some labor groups, the answer is not much. Despite having a Democratic majority for more than 18 months, the board has been issuing decisions at a glacial pace. However, in the past couple of months, the board has decided several important cases which seek to roll back the employer-friendly rulings during the Trump years. Joining us is Robert Ayafola, 
senior legal reporter for Bloomberg. He covers, among other things, the work of the National Labor Relations Board. Robert, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. There's been some criticism lately that the board has been moving too slowly. Here we are halfway through President Biden's term. We've had a Democratic majority on the board for some 18 months, and we've only had a trickle of cases. Is there anything to that criticism? Um, there could be something to that criticism. Um, I mean, particularly in light of how aggressive uh, the general counsel has acted. Um, if you're on the outside looking at what the agency has been doing, you might look at um, a lot of the initiatives that um, Jennifer Abruzzo, the general counsel, has put into motion. Um, and then in, in comparison to that, you might look at the production of um, precedent-setting decisions from the Democrat majority board. It, it might not compare that well, um, but that also might not be a fair comparison because the two jobs are very different. Uh, you know, Bruzo is a, an advocate and can act unilaterally. The board is this deliberative body made up of um, really experienced people, but even even the Democratic appointees uh, might not agree on everything, um, and they have to hammer out these rulings. Um, also, uh, the current chair, uh, Lauren McFerrin, she was part of the Democratic majority during the Trump administration, and she had criticized the board at that time for um, what she saw as them skipping over some uh, necessary steps when you have precedent-setting rulings. Um, one of them is to, um, or the, the main one is to, um, ask for the public for, uh, comments, you know, so they'll put out a, a notice, um, to the public to say, Hey, we're considering overturning precedent X, you know, any interested parties have, you know, this many weeks to get comments in. Um, so she criticized the Trump board for skipping that step. Um, and when I talked to her in January of, um, I guess it was 21, uh, she said she was going to be following that for a lot of the the major dis, um, issues they're dealing with. And she conceded at the time, well, that's going to slow us down. But in her view of what a good government and, and um, proper deliberation and everything, that that was a necessary step. So um, anyhow, long story short, there's some reasons why the production hasn't been as robust as in comparison to either the Trump administration or in comparison to what Abruzzo has done. Well, in mid-December, their ears must have been burning from all the criticism because they issued a flurry of decisions in rather short order within a few days of one another, I think maybe a lot on the same day. Uh, I'd like to uh, talk about a couple of those uh, now. One is the Thrive case, which dealt with consequential damages. What was that case about? Yeah, uh, just a quick aside. Um the reason why that flurry of cases came in December was because that was right before um, former chairman uh, John Ring. He was the chairman during the Trump administration before his term ended. Um, so basically, they have a, a a norm there that you know before a member leaves, anything that that member is going to be uh, involved in needs to get out the door. So that kind of created a deadline uh, for some of these cases. Um, so that was sort of part of the impetus for that little flurry. Um, but to get back to your uh, your question uh, about Thrive, um, the Thrive ruling was um, perhaps the most significant uh, of the rulings that came out in December. Um, it clarified that the board can issue 
what lay people call consequential damages. They used a different term in the decision. Um, it's kind of wonky in legalese, but it, it's basically um, the board can order an employer to pay uh, restitution for the foreseeable consequences of an unfair labor practice. So, for example, um, if somebody is wrongly fired, you know, they're fired because of their support for the union, which is a violation of the uh, federal labor law, they lose their job, and then they um, lose their health insurance, and then something unfortunate happens to them that requires them to uh, seek medical care, and they have to pay for that out of pocket. Uh, that's the sort of thing that could be covered by consequential damages. Um, you know, somebody has problems with car payments or um, any of these other sort of um, in the board's term, foreseeable economic consequences uh, of these unfair labor practices. Had that been a uh, prior standard of the board? Was, was the board reviving that or is this something new? So the board, to my understanding, had ordered it in random cases occasionally, uh, but it wasn't a standardized board policy. And one of the things about the Thrive decision was that the board majority made it clear that this is not just for extraordinary cases where there's egregious violations of um, the law. This is for any case. So by sort of recognizing formally that it has that power and setting up some guidelines about how, you know, it'll deal with this, there, there still are some issues, you know, administratively, um, it's more complicated to figure out consequential damages than it is to figure out back pay, for example. But it's quite meaningful because the board has been criticized or the agency has been criticized because it ha it kind of lacks a heavy stick to enforce labor law rules. Um, you know, it can't issue penalties. Um, it can't award punitive damages, uh, these sort of things. So what they do have the ability is to make somebody whole for the losses that were caused by an unfair labor practice. So the traditional idea of that is somebody gets their job back, somebody gets back pay, that sort of thing. But this sort of uses that concept of making somebody whole, but just having it be a broader concept of what that is. And we haven't seen yet what the outer boundaries of consequential damages might be. In her comments to the board when they were considering the Thrive case, um, General Counsel Abruzzo suggested that it could cover things like, yeah, like emotional distress or uh, reputational damage. Um, you know, somebody loses their job and what that does for their marketability, you know, so, but those things haven't been litigated yet. So we'll, we'll see how the board actually applies uh, this sort of new slash clarified rule moving forward. Next is the American Steel case dealing with so-called micro units. Could you tell our listeners about that? Yeah. So this is one of the cases where um, the current majority, the what I'll call the Biden board switched back to a legal standard that had been in effect during the Obama administration. So basically, this has to do with uh, so-called micro units, which is basically if you have a, a workforce and if a union wants to organize a smaller group within that workforce, uh, let's say they're organizing a, at a department store and they only want to organize at the um, cosmetics department, for example, or the automotive department. There's a 
legal standard that decides whether that's an appropriate unit or not. With this recent decision, uh, the board reverted back to the more union-friendly standard that had been in place during the Obama administration, getting away from the more employer-friendly um, standard that the Trump administration had put in place. This would encourage additional organizing, I would think, if you had a, a, a smaller bargaining unit potentially out there, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that there's a lot of different ways to skin a cat. If some unions might want the biggest possible um, unit, but it is undeniably true that it's easier to organize 15 people than it is 1,500 people. Uh, it, it would allow unions to um, to tailor their organizing strategy uh, to a particular worker group. You know, on the other side of, of the coin, employer groups uh, might say, "Hey, this is kind of bogus. These worker groups aren't really that different. You know, they're gerrymandering a unit." unfairly and they're unfairly cutting people out but the board has a standard that they apply to uh to decide whether it is an appropriate unit or whether it is a bogus act of gerrymandering and yeah this recent decision uh switches back to the obama era standard the next case is called bear county 2 b-e-x-a-r it's a county in texas i, I know it's pronounced bear county because i once had a case down there and I made the mistake of calling it Bexar and I got a lot of strange looks <laughs> that I wasn't from around there. Uh, so uh, tell us about Bear County too. Yeah, yeah. So this is another sort of switching back to a standard that was there prior to this. It, it was a situation where um, there were some organized musicians and they were practicing and performing in this in this space, the Tobin Center. And I think it was the employer was moving more towards um, using recorded soundtracks instead of uh, live orchestras. Anyway, point being that uh, the musicians had a, a reason to um, demonstrate outside of the facility, uh, but the facility was not owned by their employer. Their facility was owned by a, a third party, so it gets into the rules about when a union has the ability, or when workers, unionized workers, have an ability to stage labor protests uh, at a third party's property. Um, and again, it, this is this trend, <laughs> the flip flopping that happens um, at the board when partisan control changes. We're basically going from a more, a much more employer-friendly standard to a more worker-friendly standard. And that's not a new dynamic, is it? No, it's built into uh, the way that the board operates. Uh, it's been happening for a while. It has accelerated in recent years, but it is a, a concern. It even has its own sort of legalese-sounding uh, name for it. Um, sort of labor lawyers talk about policy oscillation. Um, <laughs> Yes, <laughs> I know what you mean. Mm -hmm. it, it makes it difficult. It, you know, it's unlike your stare decisis in court where you expect a certain precedent to last a certain amount of time and that creates some, you know, regulation and normalcy in the law where this jumps back every four to eight years going from one standard, you know, an employer-friendly standard to a labor-friendly standard and back. And it makes it very difficult to advise clients when the law is always in flux. You're absolutely right. There's no stare decisis at the board, you know, that succeeding boards are able to change the policies of their predecessors. It does inspire some um, strategy on the part of employers and unions. Like, for example, uh, near the end of the Obama administration, the board had handed down their rule in this Columbia University case, which basically recognized the employee status of student workers, you know, graduate assistants, uh, teaching assistants, even undergraduate students who work as uh, research assistants, these sort of things, 
recognized that um, they were employees under the act and that gives them the uh, right to organize. Now, that's an issue that had flip-flopped back, you know, in preceding years. So it came at the end of the Obama administration. There was a bunch of unions that had petitions to represent grad students waiting at the board and they all pulled those petitions because they didn't want to give the Trump board an opportunity to reverse Columbia and take away that right. So they basically, you know, went on hold for the duration of the Trump administration. And now uh, we're seeing this uh, real uh, flowering of uh, organizing uh, on college campuses again. Uh, a bunch of big graduate student unions, um, you know, just got voted in um, over the past couple months. And that wouldn't, that likely wouldn't have happened if the unions hadn't been strategic about dealing with policy oscillation, aka flip-flopping. <laughs> Are there any major cases that you're waiting to see decided at the board? Yeah, yeah. There's still a ton of really important stuff uh, that we're waiting. Some of this we know because there are cases that the board asked for public comment on. So, for example, there's a pending case um, called the Atlanta Opera um, that has to do with the board's legal standard for determining whether a worker is an independent contractor uh, who does not have rights under labor law or an employee that has rights under labor law. So that's obviously a big one in the, the gig economy space and elsewhere. We're waiting for um, a decision in a case that has to do with uh, the board standards for determining whether work rules, uh, employee handbook rules and policies um, are legal. It's a very important decision because it, it kind of, it's like a, it's one analogy, be it's a little bit like a stem cell. Like it, it's a standard that then gets applied to a bunch of different kind of rules, um, you know, civility rules or social media use rules or any of these different rules that uh, employers have to regulate their workplace. They'll decide a, an overall standard um, and then there'll be a second round of cases that sort of apply that standard in different settings for different rules. Um, there's also some important stuff that are uh, big projects of the general counsel, Jennifer Abruzzo. Uh, one of them has to do with what are known uh, in labor law circles as captive audience meetings. Uh, these are basically mandatory meetings that uh, employers will hold in which they give their case against why uh, workers should vote for a union. You know, they, they're one of employers' most potent tools um, in their sort of um, anti-union uh, toolbox. Uh, now, Abruzzo makes the argument that um, they're inherently coercive and that they should be illegal. Um, they've been legal for a very long time under, under board law. So that's something that's just now percolating up to the board. It'll probably be a while before we get a decision, but that's one. Another one is uh, Bruzo's campaign to revive um, what's known as the Joyce Silk Doctrine, uh, which is named after an old case, a 1949 case um, called Joyce Silk Mills. And it basically has to do with when there's uh, majority employee support for a union, usually based on signed cards, and an employer has no legitimate reason to doubt the veracity of that support. And the idea is that they should just go ahead and recognize. Now, this, the way that it was applied, you know, back in the 50s and 60s, it wasn't card check, but it was applied in situations where there were unfair labor practice charges against an employer. So they were, you know, breaking the law and ignoring this obvious indicia of majority support. It was since abandoned, I think, in the late 60s, and the board moved to a different 
weaker form of uh, ordering bargaining. But this could be a real big one because, again, uh, one of the criticisms of the agency is just the law does not give them uh, real teeth to enforce the prohibitions on certain conduct. So something like this would give the board an opportunity to have basically more teeth. You mentioned earlier that John Ring, his term ended earlier um, in the year, last year, and the board is now down to four members, three Democrats and one Republican. Do you see the ring vacancy being filled anytime soon? Yeah. So um, in talking with some sort of labor law folks about this, uh, former board members and whatnot, I've developed an expectation that it probably, the seat probably won't be filled until the summer. Past boards have operated with, uh, so the board is supposed to be five people. You have three from the majority party, uh, you know, whichever party holds the White House, and then two from the minority party. Both during the Trump administration and during the Obama administration, you had the board operating with a 3-1 split. In fact, the current board chair, Lauren McFerrin, was the sole Democrat for a while. And there's some advantages for the majority for the, you know, in these situations, because uh, the run of the mill cases are decided by three member panels. Um, so if you have a three, one partisan split, then the majority party is always going to have the majority control of a three member panel. So you won't have, you know, when it's a full five members, you can have a situation where there's a Republican majority panel deciding a sort of a run of mill, run the mill case. But anyhow, the reason why I think or I've heard people saying they expect the ring seat to be filled sometime in the summer is because uh, one of President Biden's uh, appointees, uh, Gwen Wilcox, her term, even though she just joined the board <laughs> last year, the way that the agency operates is the term on each seat is pegged to the seat itself, not to the person occupying that seat. So the seat that Gwen Wilcox occupies will expire in the summer. So they'll, the administration is going to need to renominate her. Nobody's expecting the administration to replace her. So they'll need to renominate her. So the idea is that Washington operating the way that it does, what will happen is um, in order to make the situation kind of sail through the Senate is the administration will nominate a Republican board member to replace Ring or to fill Ring's empty seat, I should say. And then they'll also renominate Gwen Wilcox, and then the Senate will consider them both in a package. And because it's a bipartisan thing, it'll sail through, boom, boom, no problems. Washington, or so we think. If Washington yeah. could only you know, work that way all the time. <laughs> <laughs> right. La Lastly, uh, where can listeners find your work? Oh, so uh, my work can be found uh, on Bloomberg Law's website. Um, if you want to check out news.bloomberglaw.com, uh, you can find it there and find my colleagues' great work as well. Very good. Robert Iafola, Senior Legal Reporter for Bloomberg. Thank you for joining us. Thanks again for having me. Tune in every Saturday at 5 p.m. for Changing Narratives, a program hosted by me, Brother Jack. Join me for interviews and discussions that will be informative and entertaining. While interviewing some of the unsung heroes from the African-American community, our goal is to bring balance to the negative narratives that are currently being shared. Once again, every Saturday at 5 p.m., Changing Narratives with Brother Jay. If you or someone you know is suffering from thoughts of suicide, you can dial the Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 988 or go to 988lifeline.org. This is a public service announcement of 90.1 FM KKFI.
Our next segment is an interview done by UMKC economist Jungjin Lee. She read John Melrod's book and offered to interview him, and we thank her. We'll kick it off with Pete Seeger's Talkin' Union, a song older than Melrod, but it's got the essence of the spirit of his book. Now, if you want higher wages, let me tell you what to do. You got to talk to the workers in the shop with you. You got to build you a union, got to make it strong. But if you all stick together, boys, it won't be long. You get shorter hours, better working conditions, vacations with pay, take your kids to the seashore. It ain't quite this simple, so I better explain just why you got to ride on the union train. Cause if you wait for the boss to raise your pay, we'll all be awaiting till judgment day. We'll all be buried. Gone to heaven. St. Peter will be the straw boss then. Now you know you're underpaid, but the boss says you ain't. He speeds up the work till you're about to faint. You may be down and out, but you ain't beaten. You can pass out a leaflet and call a meeting. Talk it over. Speak your mind. Decide to do something about it. Good evening. I'm your host, Zhong Jing Li, and on tonight's show, we will be talking to John Melrod on his new book published last year by PM Press, Fighting Times, Organizing on the Front Lines of the Class War. Welcome, John. Thank you very much for inviting me. Great. So, John, I know your book's subtitle is something about the front lines, but you actually became radical before you went to the shop floor, right? So could you kind of tell us a little bit about your earlier history? Well, one one thing I discovered in writing a memoir was that you're forced to look back and analyze how you develop certain ideas. And I grew up in Washington, D.C. in the 1950s. And it was very much an apartheid-like city. The divisions between blacks and whites were as clear as could be. And, you know, even as a child, I observed that. Just one example was the amusement park we used to go to, Glen Echo. As kids, the students from Howard University picketed it to integrate it, to demand that it be open to blacks. White racists from that area put up such a fight physically and then they threw bleach into the water so nobody could swim and as a child i said to myself it's 105 degrees out and why can't we all swim what's the difference between us so i think a lot of my development in fighting racism you know, both later on in the factory and in society had to do with seeing those inequities when I was young. I was very much impressed by your discussion on that period of time. But um, later, you also talked about how you became a student activist to a labor activist, right? So we have many listeners who are relatively young. Could you kind of get them exposed to that part of history as well? Yes, and it's a good, it's a good question. I, I, I attended the University of Wisconsin-Madison, uh, a state school, and I chose it because of the high level of political activism on the campus. 
you have to remember that that was in the midst of the Vietnam War. And for those of us who were in my age group, who were potential draftees, we were just adamant about fighting the war, not just because we were potentially drafted, but seeing night after night, villages being napalmed, villages being burned out with flamethrowers, American troops coming home maimed. It became our literally every day we took up the issue of trying to fight the Vietnamese war, the Vietnam War. In fact, when I got there, it was obligatory that all freshmen take seven weeks of weeks of ROTC training. And my first week in school, I led a protest in my class and a walkout of a good number of the students. And we actually were able to win that concession that they couldn't make it mandatory for freshmen to take it, which was a blow against the Vietnam War and training officers for the Vietnam War. But I was a little different than some of the other students because at some point I saw on a telephone pole that there was the symbol of the United Farm Workers Union and there was a speaker, Jesus Salas. And I decided to go to that event because I had an interest in, in, in workers. And part of that interest came because in 67, when I was a high school student, we went to block the buses, bringing young inductees to be sent to Vietnam. And when we got there, out of all the old factory windows, it was an old shoe factory town, Manchester, New Hampshire, there were banners, better dead than red, commies go home. And at that time, I said to the people I was with, boy, you know, if we could get these guys to understand that it's their kids that are dying and they got active, we'd really have some power. So that kind of gave me a feeling of what power potentially lies with the working class. So after I went to hear the speaker from the United Farm Workers, there was a boycott of grapes because the, I think it was 22 grape growers had refused to negotiate contracts, even though the workers had voted for the union. Then the way that the union put pressure was to boycott grapes internationally as well as in the US. So in one of the first days that we had our boycott, a group of steel workers guys with short crew cuts and big bellies and steelworker jackets all came to join us, about 50 of them. And I said, whoa, these just look like the same guys that were telling us to get out of town in New Hampshire. But they went into the store and they loaded up their carts with ice cream on the very bottom of the cart. Then they pushed them all to the checkout and they left them there. And they walked out singing Solidarity forever, the traditional union anthem. And there was one line in it that really struck me and changed the course of my life, which was, we can bring to birth a new world from the ashes of the old. And that's what I wanted to do with my life, is bring to birth a new world, a world that was more just, a world that was more humane, 
that was more equal. And after my political activism on the campus, there were quite a few of us around the country that held similar ideas. We were in the organization called at that time Revolutionary Youth Movement 2, RIM2. And RIM2 had two central principles. One was support for the Black Panther Party. And the second was that we all needed to leave the campus to go to work in industry, because if we really wanted to change society, we had to go to where people were working and where they were concentrated. So I went into an auto factory to work on the assembly line. And that's where the story in the book, Fighting Times, really unfolds. Right. Yeah, that was really interesting to know about that period of time with all these peace movement and the activists against the racism, all these things um, in line with the labor movement. Right. So, yeah, that was they very... Really, you're right. There was really an alignment because when we first started our rank and file caucus, we built a caucus within the union, within mm -hmm. UAW Local 75. And the first people to join were Vietnam veterans, mainly veterans that were black and veterans that were Latino because they had been to Vietnam. They had been treated there as third class citizens. They came back to the States and in the factory, they were still treated as second class citizens. They were given the worst jobs. They were, you know, they were assigned you know, the most menial labor. So they joined, as well as there were quite a few young black women who were church women, who had a sense of organization and togetherness. So out of this group, we started opposing practices of the company. And I'll just go through the main one, which was when the company notified us they were going to speed up the assembly line by three cars an hour without providing any additional workers. Our group had a meeting and we said, why don't we put out a flyer at the gates telling people the contract only requires us to work at a normal pace. Don't run, walk. And that started a rebellion among all the workers in the factory, young and old, black and white women who were resisting that speed up. And they taught us younger people how they had done it traditionally, which they called riding the line, which meant you would do your job no matter how long it took you. You'd work to contract, so to speak. And you'd push the next guy out of his workstation and he'd push the next guy. So the cars were half built and the company couldn't run. And then we decided, hey, let's make up T-shirts that say fight speed up with a big stop sign on them. And with the old school, we went to my house, we got a squeegee, we got a silk screen, and we started making them. And they were selling like hotcakes in the factory. The company came around and notified everyone, if you're wearing a shirt tomorrow, you're going to be fired. And they had fired some black workers earlier three or four years earlier who had wore t-shirts that said black power. 
So I wasn't sure, was I risking people's jobs by encouraging them to wear in the shirts? And that's when one of my first lessons was learned. My steward, my chief steward, who was over a whole department and the vice president of the union came up and bought t-shirts and said they were gonna wear them in. So I was from the generation that kind of looked at everybody over 30 as a sellout. Mm -hmm. But here were union guys that were willing to stand with us. And once they did that, everybody wore them in. And they had to add more workers and take work off our jobs. Of course, after that, they went to the FBI and said, hey, this guy Melrod is causing problems, causing work stoppages, and the FBI advised them to get rid of me. So a couple of days later, they discharged me and literally grabbed me under the arms and dragged me out of the factory. On my website that people might be interested in checking out, which is just www.jonathanmelrod.com, there's a memo from the FBI. It's not just a story that I'm telling that says, get rid of him and don't rehire him. Even when the National Labor Relations Board ordered me rehired, the FBI and the company said no. And it took me two and a half years to eventually go to the appellate court in the Seventh Circuit to win that job back. You are listening to the Heartland Labor Forums. And tonight we invited John Melrod to talk about his new book, Fighting Times, Organizing on the Front Lines of the Class War. John was talking about his experience organizing on the shop floor, especially focusing on the so-called rank-and-file caucus as the preferred vehicle for action. I was actually about to ask you something about union democracy, and your answers actually really give me good impressions about all the organizing efforts you made and the awareness you have uh, regarding how to protect co-workers, you know, fighting for more equal rights for every union member. In the 30s, when these unions were first formed, they were very democratic. And issues were settled by the workers on the shop floor. If they decided that a chief steward had been fired for collecting money for a worker whose house was burned down, and that chief steward got fired, the workers all sat down and refused to work. And when I was rehired, I was elected department chair when I was down in the AMC American Motors plant in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And I reinstituted departmental meetings. And at those meetings, people felt at ease to bring up their complaints. And everybody said, nobody's gonna go. They're just not interested. Well. We had 70 people attend them in a department of 300 people. And there was an incident where a chief steward had been extremely racist and had accused a white woman of kissing a black man, although he didn't use black man. He used a much more vulgar term. And we organized people to come and to confront him and to say the union can't be allowed to treat people unequally and with straight up racism. And more black workers attended that departmental meeting that went 
to the general membership meetings. So that democracy allowed the rank and file to become more and more active and more participatory in the union. I think in the book, you also mentioned Fighting Times actually was the title of the newsletter you printed out, right? And uh, uh, for several issues and the workers um, collectively made them and uh, help um, spread around. And it's kind of a way to educate people what's going on and not just on the production issues, labor issues, but also on some political discussions. So it serves for not just economic uh, fighting, but also political fights. Well, that was a very important component of our rank and file caucus. I mean, you could say that we were trying to walk on two legs. One leg was fighting those economic struggles on the shop floor. But the other leg was fighting social ills that were related to the shop, but were of themselves political. We didn't just fight racism in the shop. For instance, there was racist graffiti in one area in all the bathrooms. And a group of workers started a mass grievance to demand that that be painted over. And they were whites, blacks, and Latinos signing that petition. And the walls were painted over. Not long after that, there was a march in Tupelo, Mississippi against the Ku Klux Klan that had been reactivated. So we organized a busload of people to go down there. A lot of them were workers from our factory. When the bus pulled up, we were parked in front of the Tupelo Police Department. To my shock, as we were looking out the window, out came 20 men dressed in white robes and pointed hats carrying axe handles and 38 revolvers in their robes. And they were the police. So the Klan was the police and the police were the Klan. There was no difference. So we had put out 8,000 copies of Fighting Times to educate workers about us going down there. So not everybody agrees with that, but we felt we needed to take that stand and, and broadly take it. Now, after that, an incident occurred where I was in a tavern after work and I felt something sticking in my stomach and I looked down and it was a 38 revolver. And the guy next to me on the bar stool had said, hey, you're that commie Jew that puts out fighting times. I'm a member of the White People's Nationalist Socialist Party. I'm a Nazi and I don't like what you're doing. So I said to myself, this is a tricky situation. You know, what am I going to do to get out of it? So I said, bartender, give us both double shots. So we drank. And then we finished it. I said, two more double shots. By the end of the time that we talked, he agreed that fighting times was fighting the same problems he was facing in the maintenance department in which he worked. And after two hours, he was hugging me. His name was Deadeye DiMarino. And he was hugging me calling me his union brother. And after that, when he'd see us at the plant gate, handing out flyers, he'd always give me a nod of support. So people can change. People aren't indelibly set in their ways. 
but you've got to be there organizing them for them to trust you if you're going to try and bring them to see things politically differently. We are very grateful to have you joining us tonight. And everyone, this was John Melrod about his uh, memoir published in 2022, Fighting Times, Organizing on the Front Lines of the Class War. Come all of you good workers, this news to you I'll tell. The rights we take for granted now, we have no right to sell. Does anyone remember the days with bold John L? Good evening and welcome to Remember Our Struggle. I'm Ariana Blockman. Tonight we are going to revisit the Kansas City General Strike of 1918. Great strike at Kansas City now well underway. Walkout began at 8 o'clock this morning with barbers, bartenders, and brewers in the forefront of the fray. Trouble reported this afternoon. Sympathetic strike called to aid laundry drivers brought out 700 card men from other unions in first call. Those are from the Leavenworth Herald back in 1918. <clears throat> the Kansas City general strike is distinguished in being the first of only two general strikes ever to have been called in solidarity with the majority female workforce, the other being Oakland decades later. And in fact, many of the workers were also black. Its roots began in December 1917 with the strike of around 300 men who drove the laundry delivery trucks around Kansas City. When the bosses refused to negotiate with the drivers, around 1,000 women laundry workers joined the men on strike. These women were black and white and worked long hours indoors with heavy chemicals and poor ventilation. The two groups of workers refused to return to work until each other's demands were met for union recognition and pay raises. Strikes erupted across the laundry districts of the city, with militant street demonstrations seizing scab laundry trucks and, in some cases, crashing them. At one point, local progressive women members of the Jackson County National Council of Defense and others held a meeting between the laundry workers and women strikers, which they attempted to mediate. However, the Hotel Muehlbach, where the meeting was held, was managed under Jim Crow rules, and the black women laundry worker leaders were refused entry to the hotel. Upon hearing this, the white women laundry worker leaders walked out. The hosts wanted to know why the laundry owners were allowed their own association, the Laundry Owners Association, in all caps, while forbidding their workers to form associations of their own, but no satisfactory answer could be provided. Sarah Lloyd Green of the KC Women's Trade Union League, a waitress by trade and an active organizer of waitresses, was almost physically assaulted during the meeting by the leader of the Laundry Owners Association, despite witnesses. Ms. Green was the lead organizer of the women commercial laundry workers and aggressively championed a general strike among the various union locals in Kansas City. After weeks of turmoil and the rest of Kansas City organized labor watching armed mercenaries beating strikers in the street, a general strike was finally called for March 27th in solidarity with these workers. Immediately out walked the building trades, electricity plant and brewery workers, barbers and porters, many of whom already had labor beefs of their own with their own employers. A crowd of a 1,000 freed some of their number from detention by a police paddy wagon and then set it on fire. Police guards at a laundry location shot a striker named Alfonso Millsap to death. That first night, strikers roamed the streets accosting still-opened restaurants and hotels, eliciting armed response by the National Guard. The second day, the new newly unionized streetcar workers joined the fray. 
Workers in the downtown area who were already working without heat in many cases due to the strike got word of the streetcar strike two hours before it took effect, and a mass scramble to get home took place in a city mostly served exclusively by streetcar at the time. Two scab trolley cars, which were still running, were burned by strikers, and even with National Guard protection, only partial streetcar service was maintained during the strike. Women laundry workers and others were reported throwing rocks at scab streetcars all over the city. As the night began, tailors joined the strike, as well as movie theater attendants, leading to the closure of 71 local movie theaters. The fifth day of the general strike was on Easter Sunday, and things were relatively quiet. But the following day, bakers around Kansas City also walked out. Kansas City bakeries attempted to stock baked goods from St. Louis bakeries, but St. Louis bakery workers provided, refused to provide the extra scab goods. On the seventh day, the general strike finally ended with a draw, and all an estimated 25,000 workers around Kansas City had taken part in the general strike. Striking laundry workers were hired back without the letting go of the scabs, without union recognition. Raises were promised, but the company broke their promises, and with no formally recognized union, leaders were fired, and nothing could be done to make the owners honor the raises. The strike ended with some confusion, with returning streetcar workers told they could no longer wear union buttons on the clock. The workers balked, and after only a few hours, management changed their mind and re-allowed the buttons. Many building trades workers remained locked out over their own job issues, and some 1,200 cooks, waiters, and waitresses also refused to return without a raise in improved working conditions. The legacy of the strike lived further. Just a few months later, the streetcar workers, who had initially resisted pushes to hire women conductors, relented, and Kansas City boasted the only streetcar union in the country to include women members. I hope you've enjoyed learning about the Kansas City general strike of 1918. Have a great evening, everyone. And... No time for the calendar tonight, but you can find it on our Facebook page as of later this evening uh, if you want to find out what the upcoming events are. And um, tune in next week to our show. We're going to be talking with the author of a book called Trucking Country, The Road to America's Walmart Economy by Shane Hamilton. Uh, and our Labor Leader Series will have Amber Gibson Navigating the Future for Argosy Casino Workers. The Heartland Labor Forum is a member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Check out the rich diversity of programming related to workers and unions at laborradionetwork.org. Thanks to our engineer, Scott Stanton. And stay tuned for the Thursday night special, which is Shots in the Night Radio Theater. Please fill out the listener survey at kkfy.org and tell us your favorite shows. And next week, it's Pledge Drive. Get out your checkbooks, get out your credit cards, and plan to call in during the show. You have been listening to the Heartland Labor Forum, a show by and about workers, our workplaces, and our labor movement. We are radio that talks back to the boss. And you can talk back to us, too. Send us your feedback, your workplace stories, news, and ideas for shows to Heartland Labor Forum, KKFI, at gmail.com. Our website, where we archive shows and post our upcoming ones, is heartlandlaborforum.org. The views expressed on this show are ours and not necessarily those of KKFI or any of the unions involved. Tune in every Thursday evening at 6 or to our rebroadcast Friday mornings at 5 right here, 90.1 FM. We still got our pride.
Cause we are the working class And that's the place to be